You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver, Jim Kassan, Mark Resimczynski, Alan Don and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now today and next week will be very special episodes because we get together as a group, even if Rich is unable to join us today, for one big conversation and debate of topics we believe have been important during the year. Plus, we have a topic that was brought to us by one of our listeners that I thought was very relevant. As you know, the podcast series is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing. So we hope that you will enjoy this group conversation over the next two weeks. We're recording today on December 6th, and this conversation will be split into two parts and published on December 24th and December 31st. And therefore, there will be no market wrap or performance updates. We have a long list of great topics, and we'll be discussing uh, those. Um, but before we kick off, uh, off with the first topic, um, maybe I could just um, sort of, like we did last year, um, <laughs> Jim was not here, but but like we did last year, some of you had made some special preparations for the conversation. I remember Rob was, uh, you know, you had warmed up well with some Christmas themes. I know people can't see us, but maybe Rob, you can just sort of uh, highlight a little bit how your preparations have been for this year's debate. Well, last year, actually, I had boxing gloves with me because uh, our, our good friend, um a good American friend was on the on the pod on the podcast, so I knew there'd be some hit harsh debates, but um, things are probably a bit more gentlemanly today. So I haven't got boxing gloves with me, but I am I'm wearing my my traditional Christmas jumper, so I'm I'm ready to go. Yeah, and I, I admittedly I think you are the one that is most Christmassy today. So why don't we just uh, dive straight into it now? As I said, the first thing uh, I wanted to bring up was really a topic that was brought to us by Zach. Um, and I think we can all agree that 2022 did not pan out uh, the way many experts predicted. Um, and it would go down as a year um, where we used the word unprecedented quite a few times. Um, and um, and also, as we um, kind of talked about in 2021 and 2022, it has been kind of the end of an era maybe where central banks uh, were fully in control uh, for the prior two decades. So Zach kicks off with a question that's, uh, that is written like this. I recently finished reading The Rise of Carrie, which, by the way, is uh, co-written by one of our co-hosts, namely Kevin Coldiron, uh, who hosts the Ideas Lab series. And Zach continues... Your request for topics for the year and, and for the year-end roundtable discussion and the book got me thinking about this question. Have we seen an end to the carry regime that has dominated the past 12 to 14 years? What is the indicator that this carry regime has indicated uh, has ended? Sorry, could the indicator um, be the performance results of divergent strategies? Question mark. Have a good week. I'm looking forward to the conversation. So. I'm going to ask, um, I'm going to just go throw out to, to you, Mark, first, maybe, um, and just think, so your thoughts about this stable carry regime that we uh, have defined, um, I don't know if you believe it's ended or not, um, but what would you be looking for, whether to tell if it's ended or not? Well, I think it's just a matter of whether we're in transition. So looking at carry trades for a long time in the FX area, and then looking at different 
types of carries, uh, let's say uh, backwardation, contango type trades in in commodities, uh, you find that there are uh, there are periods of regime transition, and that's what we may be in uh, when you have higher volatility. What you really look for for carry, or at least I look for carry, is a dispersion in returns. And so as long as you can get dispersion in returns and differences in central bank behavior, then it, then you can create opportunities in carry. Specifically, we'll sort of say that uh, when there is high volatility or uh, spikes in volatility, then you have to exit from carry those may last for months, could be quarters, but eventually they subside and then opportunities then arise again in the, in the carry space. Jim, I also want to ask you from, you come obviously with a different perspective to the rest of us. Uh, and this is a topic that I think you and I have uh, kind of touched on quite a few times during the global macro series. Uh, to you, this definition, however we define it, carry regime, I define it as just this very stable environment where central banks were fully in control. Um, but w- what does it look like to you? Uh, do you think um, that it has ended? And and what is the kind of the indicator for you that tells you that this may have ended? Well, to me, the biggest carry trade in the market um, always is uh, upside versus downside in the market, right? Skew. Um, in the volatility markets that I, you know, trade in, um, there's usually an equity skew, a massive uh, left tail skew, and the reason that is um, is because the whole world is long. You have 400 trillion dollars of long a- assets, and people hedge that tail, which creates a supply and demand imbalance, which is the defining characteristic of all carry trades, um, and a fat left tail um, with a positive bias. Um, that has been exacerbated by uh, massive uh, flows, positive flows uh, into investment from low, from zero percent interest rates. It's that simple. Um, that's caused more leverage to the to the trade, um, and a fatter left tail, but with a, a strong positive bias for some time now. Um, I do believe that regime is, uh, you know, for the time being, for the next decade, um, slowing. It's not something that goes away. There's always that carry trade. Um, but it's a function of less leverage in the system, uh, uh, you know, a, a rebalancing and a deleveraging, uh, which removes some of that positive bias that we're seeing, that the cost of money is going up. Um, and ironically, should uh, this is counterintuitive to most, but should reduce the fat tail um, over time uh, here. So, you know, I think markets are likely to have a deleveraging process, which eventually flattens you know, over this period, uh, the downside and, and creates a put on the market with lower valuations and better cash flows. Um, but in the time being, uh, we're, we've seen that uh, this year. That's been one of the defining characteristics of this year, which is a flattening skew. And I think that's actually um, somewhat efficient in the in the medium to longer term, um, even though most people are out there kind of uh, running around saying, uh, this is crazy. This is the zeroth percentile. This is unsustainable. So, but we can get to that later. Sure, sure. Rob, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit in disagreement. So if I look at the empirical evidence I've got, which is for the carry strategy I use, which is across a lot of different futures, different asset classes and futures, so it doesn't cover spot effects. It doesn't cover options on, you know, non-linear stuff. So it's purely, purely in futures, but it is across asset classes. So it's maybe not, it's moving away slightly from the very poor carry stories in certain parts of uh, of the space. Um, so it's true to say that over the last kind of 18 months, two years, really since COVID, um, carry hasn't done very well at all. Um, 
But that's not unprecedented. Um, so Carry did very badly, as you might expect, in 2008, 2009. It did very badly in 1999 because those are obviously periods of, you know, well, bluntly the shit hitting the fan, which is what Carry doesn't like. Um, but if, if I look back even further to um, the late 1970s, which is kind of towards the start of my data, is actually the really, really horribly horrific period for Carry then, much worse than what we're seeing now. Uh, and then after that, Carry went on a, you know, sort of 25, 30 year bull run. So, you know, but based purely on empirical evidence, if, if this is some kind of statistical distribution that I, I, whose parameters I'm trying to estimate, I wouldn't say that there's been enough evidence in the last 18 months to say, you know what, we should just stop trading carry because it's, it's not going to work now. That's not the case. Um, and there's one other point I'd like to make as well, which is around this, um, kind of very common story that carry does really badly when volatility is high. Um, and actually I found that that's true to an extent. But interestingly, momentum does even worse, at least based on the, the measure of volatility that I've been using, which is kind of on a market by market basis. And so, and so actually on a relative basis in, you know, when, when things are really going crazy, carry seems to do relatively well compared to say momentum, which is kind of the other main tool in my particular back, um, which may surprise some people. But again, I, I don't, it's for me, it's not necessarily a clear evidence that at least the way I trade carry, I should be turning the thing off. I'm pretty happy to let it run with the current allocation. I think in fairness, Rob, also that when I, you know, when I read the book, uh, The Carry Regime, and when we first actually had Kevin on as a guest um, before he became a co-host, my impression was not necessarily that they defined it as does carry strategies work. It was also like, you know, doing that, what they define as the carry regime, say from year 2000 up until end of 2019, what investors would have done really well from was just being long stocks and bonds, ideally bonds with leverage, and that worked perfectly. And so I don't necessarily mean that carry strategies have stopped working, uh, although it is interesting that you say that they work really well, uh, worked poorly at some point in the 70s and then went on this massive run. But of course, that ties in well with kind of globalization and and, and how everything became more stable uh, in that sense. But um of course, some carry uh, strategies will probably always continue to work to some extent. Any anything else you want to add to this? Yeah, Jim. Yeah, I'll, I'll dive in. I, I actually agree that this. I don't think carry's dead or going away. I think carry's always a source of uh, real edge in the sense that it's a supply demand imbalance that's structurally in the market um, at all times. I think the argument here, for me at least, is that it's uh, you know we're experiencing a deleveraging and periods like 08, uh, those deleveragings are fast and they end quickly and the carry trade comes back quickly. Periods like the 70s um, where they're inflationary, where the cost of money is going up secularly, those uh, those deleveragings are are long and they're slower um, and they can lead to headwinds for extended periods of time. And uh, it, it hurts. It's a headwind for carry trades um, because the supply and demand imbalances are a bit more balanced during those periods. So I think that would be my argument. I think it's always uh, carry trades, again, represent the $400 trillion, like I said, you can't hedge that. That creates a carry trade. That's not going away. It's just the headwinds that make that a bit more balanced. Um, those types of carry trades a bit more, uh, you know, balanced during these periods. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, what maybe we're getting at is that there, there is a sense of a regime shift underway. Um, it's just whether you call it the end of carry, whether that's the, the right characterization for us. I mean, there's a lot of kind of patterns, trends that, that have been in place for at least two decades, maybe four decades in terms of declining interest rates 
falling inflation rates, uh, globalization, etc., that are, are, are appear to be about to shift now. Um, you know, other characterizations of this, you know, we had Isabel Schnabel talking about the great volatility, whereas previously we had the great moderation. So I think that, I think there is a sense from a macro perspective that we may be in the midst of a regime shift, but at the same time, is, is, is calling it the end of carry, the right characterization. As, as you guys have said, there's always carry opportunities. We've had a great carry opportunity in, 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 in dollar yen this year. You know, if, if commodity markets get very backward dated, you could have great carry opportunities there. So, um, you know, we, we talked about a McKinsey paper going back a few weeks. Uh, they were they talked about this issue uh, and they just called it a new era. They didn't put a name on it. So I think the name is up for grabs. But, but uh, you know, from a macro perspective, I think lots of lots of macro trends ha are, have reversed this year. And you can make a good case for, for why we are in a new regime or a new era. Yeah. I mean, tying this back to what you're saying, Niels, I think, I think the regime change perhaps is that easy money in the last 10 years has been going long financial assets because of carry benefits but of course a carry strategy can go short and it can also trade commodities and other asset classes and you know so that's where i think there's still opportunities it's just unlikely that you're just going to make a, a heck of a lot of money just from you know doing a typical bond carry strategy or a typical fx carry strategy which is going along everything and, and that's the real distinction i think it's not so much that it's a change in carry strategies that we're seeing is that traders will adjust to the environment on their strategies. It's the leverage that's the issue. So the idea that you had cheap leverage that could you could then borrow money and then buy assets and hold them for long periods of time is the end of the era. Now you're going to have to actually work for your money as opposed to just borrowing a little you know money, leveraging up, and just holding assets. So, so we'll sort of say it, it will say uh, before or in the previous era, you could just sort of like hold and not have to work. And now you're going to have to work for your money. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. I think we all know, <laughs> know that. Um, all right. Let's jump on to the first topic that, um, that um, we brought along, so to speak. Um, and it's from Alan. And I thought maybe today what we can do is that I'll just give sort of the highlight and then um, the person who brought along the topic um, can say a few uh, words about it, set some context. Um, but Alan, the first topic I chose of yours to uh, talk about uh, is, um, and maybe there's a theme in, in this uh, conversation today, uh, focusing more on the year 2022 and then next week we will focus on the maybe looking a little bit more into the future um but you uh, you raised the question about why was 2022 such a strong year for trend followers um and were there any particular sort of holding periods that uh worked better than than others so do you want to set a little bit of context and uh, i don't know jim if you want to weigh in on this particular topic but uh, you can always do that of course <laughs> yeah sure i, I guess uh, this is kind of an end of year review and you know typically when uh, uh, you know as a uh, as somebody um involved with managing you know multi-manager portfolios when you went out to speak to clients these are the kind of questions that you got in these kind of year-end review forums it's and obviously we, we've seen uh, an exceptionally strong year for for, for for trend following um you know and I, so i think that will raise two, two questions one there's the mechanical well you know what, what did well what did badly this year which i guess some of your guys will probably have 
more to comment on. My sense is probably across lots of different time frames, it's been pretty good year this year, um, as opposed to and, and 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 you know where in some years you get a big dispersion depending on whether you're commodity focused or not, or whether you're more financially focused. I think we've had trends across many markets, but I, I think there is a second question that people will ask. It's been such a good year for trend following. Um, you know, it, it, was there something very un unique about the year this year that that led to that? And it, you know, was it more of a, a one-off? You know, this will be the argument that you would get. Um, so I think the simple answer to the question is obviously we saw strong trends in markets. You know, we, obviously trend following does well when you get persistent price action. Um, secondly, it, it was across a number of different markets. You know, sometimes you'll get a strong trend in one market sector, but fairly choppy action across the other sectors. But but certainly bonds interest rates, commodities, um, all did well this year. Equities a bit, bit a bit choppier. And I think a third issue I wanted to, to just touch on was in some markets, you did have very favorable setups, particularly in, in, in interest rates and bonds. You had, you know, a very strong volatility expansion. So if you went back to the start of the year in bonds and short-term interest rates uh, or into kind of the latter part of last year, you know, volatility was low. So if you were getting signals to go short in those markets, you were putting those positions on in very meaningful size. So that combination of strong directional mo momentum plus volatility expansion would have led to particularly strong returns in those markets. So there could be a question there was, was that a particularly favorable setup in those market sectors? And now that we're into a slightly higher, higher vol regime, would it be less likely that we might see that uh, persisting over time. I think certainly we'd all agree we wouldn't expect performance to be as strong as this year going forward. Um, so in that sense, yes, there were exceptional things about this year. So I would say, yeah, from, from, from my, my perspective, uh, big moves, very uh, maybe unusually prolonged moves too. You know, in some sectors like bonds, if you got a, a fairly simple kind of um, uh, moving average cross signal at the start of the year, you would have stayed in that all year. Uh, we've also had higher interest rates this year as being a small additional plus, uh, and we've all had that volatility expansion. So I think we've had, uh, you know, there's a number of dimensions to, to why it was so good this year beyond the, the obvious. So interested to get the perspectives from, from everybody else. Yeah, Rob, what uh, what have you seen in your uh, little machine? Yeah, I mean, the, the, obviously it's been an interesting, as we've said, it's been a bad year for carry and a, a good year for trend. Um, although I think it's also important to emphasize that most of that action, at least for me, happened in the first few months of the year. Now, the rest of the month, the rest of the year have basically been treading water. And I'm actually down, I think, 4% since April. Um, the, um, the, the other thing I found interesting, and I pointed this out in a podcast episode earlier in the year, was it's, I've got a strategy called skew, which will be quite different from, from what uh, <laughs> other people, if they would call skew, because my mind does is look at the, the recent skew of a, of a, of an asset, a future. And basically, if that skew is unusually negative, it goes long because basically the view is that the market's saying, well, this thing is horrible and unpleasant and therefore will be cheaply priced and, um, and therefore it's a good time to buy and that, that works pretty well. Um, but that's a classic kind of, um, um, convergent strategy in a way. It should do badly when things like carry are doing badly and it should be basically uncorrelated to momentum. And generally it is, but this year actually skewed very well indeed. Um, so I, I wonder whether there is some, something particularly unusual in, in the market this year. Um, and I haven't really got a good explanation for it, but, but I, I think it's the only time in my entire back test that I've seen those two strategies do incredibly strongly at the same time. Um, so that may be an indication there is something weird about about this year, whether it's because it's a rotation in environments which you already touched on, or whether there's something 
really weird going on with the sort of relationship between price and volatility. You know, I'm, I'm not completely sure, but it's definitely been a weird year for me at least. Okay. Mark, um, what does the, is there any things you can point to as to why this year was such a strong year? Well, I'm okay. going to use a technical term. I'll call it the grind. <laughs> I don't know if I could say this on a, on a, on a uh, podcast, but, but the, let's go back to 2020. So March 2020, we had a, a tremendous decline in asset prices. Uh, you know, it, was a, it was a much bigger shock than what we've seen in uh, 2022. And yet trend followers in general, you know, some if you were positioned correctly in February, you made money, but a lot of people lost money during that period of time. Uh, there was a huge move, but it was over a very short period of time. And so models didn't get a chance to uh, adjust or respond to that shock. And so it never showed up in performance. 2022 has been slightly different because I, I call it, uh, and why I was successful for trend followers is, is what I call the grind. We've just had markets grinding lo uh, lower and higher, depending on which direction you're in, for a longer period of time. And this is one of the things that uh, that whenever you talk to clients, that always it, it comes up in some discussion. Is this is that I'll call it the uh, Goldilocks environment. And the sense is is that that they'll say like they'll look at a chart and said, "Well, the market moved. Why didn't you make money if you're a trend follower?" And he's like, "Well, it, the conditions weren't really that right." And then he's like, "Well, well." What, what do the conditions have to be? And it says, hey, well, they got to move, but not too much. They got to move, but they got to have enough dispersion. And so if you look at uh, uh, 2022 in terms of the grind, we have the grind of central banks that you know were sort of consistent with their policy change in the regime. You had the grind of inflation. that it's, It wasn't just a shock. It was just continue to move higher. Uh, you had the, the you know grind down, lower on growth. And so that combination of macro trends leading to price trends, you know, really drives markets. And so, so the question you have to ask for 2023, is the grind going to continue? And that will determine whether you're really going to make money in, uh, in, in trends in the, in the next year. Yeah, I will come to that. Jim, you want to say something about this? Yeah, I think the grind to me is, means a secular trend, a secular force. Um, I think that's what we're beginning to see. I think people don't are so used to thinking about cyclical moves within the last 40 years because it was a one one way secular trend with a bunch of cyclical uh, changes. When you experience, you know, imagine a graph where you're on the turn, you're in a regime shift, and all of a sudden the acceleration to a new trend is very fast at that first turn. It slows. The rate of change slows and kind of flattens out um, over uh, time as that regime shifts. And I think we're on that turn, right? And so there's a real quick acceleration to trend, and that that will slow over years, um, in, in my opinion. But but that grind is that is that secular trend that that is now starting, right? Um, and I think that's very important to kind of think about. That's true for so many asset classes this year. You're really seeing a, a transition and a, a, a big push, a big force towards what people are seeing as a massive beginning of a secular trend. Again, we'll have cyclical moves between that, right? But that should be, um, you know, secularly good, you know, in the, in the short term for trend, I would think. 
uh, you know, again, it'll slow uh, over time. And, 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 but I think you're in a period where that turn is really fast towards a new regime, a secular kind of push. And that's really good for trend in, in the short term. Yeah, I mean, I think from my point of view, I was thinking about this question and um, there are kind of three things that I um, sort of seem to remember from the year. Uh, I completely agree with what has been said already, that I think that the trends unfolded a little bit slower, at least in some of the sectors like interest rates and currencies. So I think that was certainly um, uh, beneficial up until the reversal, of course, uh, in November. I also felt, and this is purely from memory, that correlations were a little bit different between some of the markets and sectors that what we've normally seen. For example, the bond equity correlation certainly uh, was different. Uh, so I wonder if there is some benefit that we may have had um, from from that. Uh, I can't really sort of um, articulate it better. And then to the point about, you know, were there any particular timeframes? I mean, I think Alan uh, said it already that uh, probably a lot of different timeframes uh, did well. But we actually... Um, in our firm, we we have a, a trend uh, model that we um, uh, run from time to time to see um, all the different timeframes, pretty much from a few weeks up until uh, a couple of years, to see which timeframes um, uh, have worked would have worked the best had you known it. And it's very interesting because 2008 and 2014 has been the standout years where, uh, you know, up until now, every single timeframe uh, would have worked to varying degrees. But actually, right now, I think at the end of October when we ran it last time, it's even stronger. It's even more um, pronounced that every single time frame um, in 2022 would have worked. So it, there is something a little bit unusual about the year, but I would say it's not that unusual. It's not like performance has been like three times more than it has been in a good year. It's kind of a good year, um, but I don't think it's exceptional uh, in that sense. Now, someone mentioned that you can have the wrong kind of volatility. So as that as a segue, I want to jump to one of Jim's uh, uh, topics um, because, of course, volatility um, strategies has been um, certainly maybe you could say performing differently to what a lot of people have expected uh, given what unfolded. Um, and there are a couple of things, um, and I'd love to hear your expand on this, uh, Jim, but there are a couple of things you said stood out for you in 2022 we already touched a little bit on this regime shift. Um, we had inflation coming back um, and then this uh, equity vol and, and skew underperforming. Um, and then you talk about this not being a co coincidence, actually, um, and, and also in terms of, you know, options in previous uh, secular inflation, or should I say the lack of options in previous uh, secular inflation regime. So take this topic away and then we'll, we'll weigh in as, as best we can. Yeah, so um, two things I, I actually just spoke about, kind of the difference between secular and cyclical. And I think I think that's so critical to the way everybody should be thinking about everything that's happening in this market. We've had a you know secular trend for 40 years based on Federal Reserve uh, activity and, and monetary policy dominance. Uh, that simple change, in my view, is changing this secular trend, right? That's the core issue here. Um, and so we're no longer just looking at the cyclical, we're looking at secular changes. And that's what regime shift is all about. And that makes things muddier. You have to look at two different things operating on two different timeframes uh, and how they interact. It's a bit more complex. Um, we happen to see this year um, a cyclical 
um, some cyclical effects uh, pushing the same way as secular at the same time in the vol space. Um, uh, on the on the cyclical side, uh, you know, people crowded in after a big long, uh, sorry, a big vol move in, in 2020 and into long skew and long uh, downside protection uh, before a decline in the market, um, and that caused an oversupply of vol um, uh, over hedging, which uh, on the way down has compressed volatility, compressed skew. Um, and this is something we see cyclically that happens. It's a, we go one way on this and then we go the other, uh, you, know, you and I have talked about this quite, quite some bit. It's really compressed implied volatility to the downside in the markets. And we've seen this kind of flattening of skew. So those, that's a cyclical effect, but at the same time, secularly, uh, and I kind of referenced this briefly at the beginning of the show, um, we're secularly moving into a period of less fed dominance, less monetary policy dominance and uh, higher inflation. Um, and, and as that inflation um, you know, creeps into markets, it puts a put underneath the market and it actually historically over longer timeframes kills skew. It, it removes the upside trend in markets um, and makes for a more two-sided market. This is that uh, you know that rise of carry conversation, right? Uh, we have over, uh, if you look at the, the 60s to 70s, uh, over 14 years, 68 to to 82, uh, the market went nowhere for 14 years. Um, it had above trend economic growth. Uh, you know, uh, earnings actually were, were were quite strong over that period. More frequent recessions, but the the market just died at a slow death, right? Uh, in real terms, it lost 60 65 percent of its value, I believe. Um, in real terms. So, I mean, you, you're looking at a market that is more likely, if we continue to have secular inflation, which I believe we will, um, that, that's likely to have two-sided volatility and not have upside trend. That's going to uh, make the stock bond uh, kind of relationship uh, you know, break a bit, as it did during the 60s and 70s for a secular amount of time, in my opinion. Um, but that secular trend should kill skew as well. So those two things have happened at the same time. The cyclical part, I would argue, is, is a bit overdone. Right, um, and, and you're likely now people have moved completely out of skew and downside protection and are playing for that more secular trend. Um, and it's about a bit overdone. Everybody's on the other side of the boat now. Um, and that's likely to cause kind of the second move phenomenon uh, in the short term. But really secularly, uh, you know, that reduction in skew, that reduction in the, um, the downside, uh, you know, this carry trade dynamic with the fat tail and the upside bias um, is, is actually secularly actually uh, on the way out. Anyway, so um, you kind of think about those two things together. This year has been, uh, you know, anybody who sold puts and sold stock this year, essentially, uh, as a basic summary or, or um, you know, absolutely killed it, um, right? That's the, that, that is the, the carry trade. Um, that is the trade that, that and a lot of people, if you look throughout the portfolios and try and summarize what, what has, you know, when things have done very well, it's basically that in summary in some form or another, Um so, um, you know, that that won't last, you know, never lasts too long in the short term uh, because of those cyclical effects because of the crowding in, crowding out. But I do think it is a secular time where that general trade will do better um, over long time frames. Now, I want to bring in you, Alan, a little bit here um, to broaden out this particular topic a little bit because... Um, as as always happens, um, uh, you 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 end up with um, so certain topics becoming quite popular, um, and I think this particular topic became has become even more popular because during COVID there was a little bit of a Twitter spat between Universa and AQR, um, and now they're both coming out with papers. Interestingly enough, on this 
trend versus tail hedge uh, topic. So maybe we can broaden out the conversation a little bit to take that into account. And, and you promised me to um, summarize a little bit about some of their arguments and then maybe we can all weigh in on 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 that sure so um there was two papers one from universa um and then a second one from aqr and as you say but both broadly on the topic of you know um our, our ctas and trend following uh, you know a, a source of protection in portfolios um or uh, and and how does that compare to kind of tail hedge strategies um so maybe just going through the um universa paper first um and uh you know, I suppose just I suppose taking the summary is that um, you know, I suppose the point that he says that CTA claims of superior of being superior to, to other forms of risk mitigation are exaggerated. Now, some of the, the the characterizations in the paper are maybe not things that even that we would agree with. So there's this suggestion that um, you know it is claimed that CTAs reliably achieve positive returns during major sell-off in stocks and bonds. Um, I mean, I, I don't think we all will say reliably achieve. I mean, it's a, it's a more of a historical uh, feature of, of CTA performance. Um, a, a further claim is that trend-following strategies have sufficiently large positive returns over the long run so that an allocation will add value. Um, so I think that's we probably would say that. Uh, some proponents go as far as to assert that trend-following is an insurance policy that investors are paid to hold. So again, I don't think we would go as far as to say that. So in that sense, maybe we, we, we wouldn't disagree with, 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 with the, the guys in university for what they're saying here. But at the same time, when you dig into uh, this paper, uh, it, there's probably um, kind of four main parts to it, really. First is really just a... Um, a, a review of of um, kind of CTA uh, kind of performance historically, and uh, and I suppose there's an assertion here that maybe trend following returns have have um, kind of de declined over time. So uh, the, the the writer looks at the. Barclays CTA index, the SOCGEN CTA index, and they actually include AQR's managed future strategy in the paper. So that may be a reference to that spash that you alluded to, Niels. Um, I mean, the general point, first point is that CTA performance has declined over time. They look at the returns since the 1980s of the Barclays CTA index. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously in absolute terms, um, you might you might question that because uh, the 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 volatility of the Barclays CTA index has has adjusted over time, so you would have to adjust for that. Um, one thing that they don't do uh, was they don't adjust for interest rates. So obviously interest rates were much higher in the 1980s, so so they haven't factored for that. But by their basic calculations, uh, the return to volatility ratio appeared to be declining over time, and they were saying it would be a huge uh, leap of fate to assign an allocation based on a high front-loaded historical return. You know, so in other words, you shouldn't be allocating to CTAs because yes, they've done well historically, but most of those returns were back in the 1980s. But actually, I looked at the BTOP50 index and looked at the five-year rolling sharp, and it's at an all-time high now. Uh, that goes back to the 1990s. So, so that claim that, uh, you know, CTA performance isn't as good as, good as it was doesn't seem to, to, to stack up. Um, the second thing is to look at kind of uh, the CTAs in terms of uh, 
trend, uh, sorry, equity protection. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I guess there is this general question here. You know, I don't think we would portray uh, CTAs as, as a protection strategy, but we always emphasize diversification. But even this uh, CTAs as mitigators of, of equity risk. The, the general point here is twofold. One is that you shouldn't be just looking at sharp ratio, that you should be looking at uh, the, the compound annual growth rate as the, as the key measure that if you combine um, uh, trend and equity, are, are you enhancing the the the, the combined annual growth rate? Uh, and then the question is, well, how much would you need to allocate? And then the third thing is then, well, if you make that meaningful allocation, what about the periods when you have uh, underperformance relative to equities? What's the drag? So the general point here is that when you look at it from that perspective, um, you know, they kind of say it's been a bit of a wash in terms of uh, growth rate uh, and, and, and the drag in the 2010s was so great that, that would be too great for, for investors to bear. And, uh, you know, going forward, if you had a repeat of that, and that's the reason for not including uh, CJs. Um, I mean, from my perspective, looking at how they presented. I, I, you know, I think it's if you look at the period, uh, say, from 2000 to 2022, um, just look at like it, it actually combining CTAs does enhance the, the CAGR. Um, the other point is to use the SOCGEN CTA index here, which is a low vol index, it only runs at about 8%. So if you use the SOCGEN trend index, which runs at you know 12 or 13 percent, you would see a much bigger impact. So you actually, I think, if you run the numbers, you you, you do enhance the the compound annual growth rate, and you get a lower drawdown. So they very much downplay the drawdown benefit that you get from uh, combining trend and equities. Uh, but there is this question that they leave outstanding of you know can you still w would you be able to live with that drag that you've had in 2020 2010 sorry uh, for for having trend the third part uh, then then they kind of move into looking at bonds uh, as another source of diversification or protection and you know they put up a chart here that shows the cumulative return on the SOCGEN CTA index versus the Barclay US Treasury index and it's kind of remarkable because it's remarkable. They say it's remarkable. I think it's remarkable in a different way because they the, the chart looks reasonably similar, but but in no way kind of statistically uh, yeah, assessed for for similarity. And and there are clear periods of divergence between the two lines. But yet to say uh, it seems it seems that CTAs have generated a significant portion of their profits from persistent long positions in fixed income, you know, based purely on the on this chart. So I think that that's quite remarkable in itself. Um, you know, obviously, CTAs did benefit from from the trends in in bonds at times, uh, but um, they also reference a paper from 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 Niederhofer and and Wedepol, uh, which I think we're probably all familiar with. Which is is ironic that they reference that paper because that 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 paper at the time made made the suggestion that CTAs might struggle in a rising yield environment, um, and we've obviously had that in 2022, uh, and that hasn't been the case. So. I, it, it, this bit about CTA's comparison with bonds seems to be, uh, you know, a, a slightly unusual in in the context of of overall the overall paper. But but it, it, the point is, CTA's seem to behave a bit like bonds, and they don't believe that bonds are are, are a good uh, uh, protector. So. Um, you know, in conclusion, um, you know, th th there are some kind of uh, conciliatory, conciliatory remarks, I would say, in, say in saying 
CTAs have performed very well in 2022, um, you know, and, and, and that there may be a case, but, but, but basically you have to have a high allocation to move the needle, and then would you be able to sit with the drag that you had in the 2010? So, so if I was to summarize, that, that's it. But as I say, there's a few features within there, a few, a few ways that they approach the analysis that are maybe a little bit questionable. And then maybe quickly on the AQR paper, it's, it's a... Yeah, it's fairly simple. It's just looking at trend versus um, versus uh, systematic put buying uh, and versus um, tail hedging funds. And basically, the point is that yes, uh, in short, sharp drawdowns, the tail hedges will will work better. But in more prolonged drawdowns, um, uh, trend following will work better. And then the second point is if you take account of what they call the round trip. So if you think about, we had the, the sell-off in March 2020, but then you have the recovery after that. So when you account for that, they don't, they look, uh, the tail hedges look less attractive. And then there's the point about, well, if you take account of the returns in the period when equities are doing well, obviously your, your, your put buying is going to underperform. So over the whole cycle, uh, adjusting for, for the two, trend following looks uh, better than, than tail hedging or... or, or um, the tail hedge funds are systematic put buying. So that's kind of the the other's side of the, of the argument, um, I would say. Sure, sure. Now, I want to get to you, Jim, at some point, because it's obviously uh, sort of uh, uh, universes in, in your space, not our space. But, but Rob, uh, you were itching to uh, have a few things to uh, weigh well, in actually, on Well, actually, pretty much all the points I was going to make, Alan made already, because we obviously read the paper and had the same issues with the methodology. I mean, it's a pity, really, because... In, in many ways, the paper is correct in that if you do set up this straw man that trend following is this wonderful thing that does everything, then of course it doesn't. Of course you can argue with that. But the, the methodology in the paper is, is appalling. And that, yeah, that graph about with a bond chart made me feel physically sick, frankly. But anyway, um, so yeah, as he's done such a good job, I'll just add one thing, which is I think the AQR paper would have been nice if they'd added on both sort of slow and fast trend following, because obviously fast trend following is more similar to put buying in this in, in sort of its characteristics and it probably would have done better in these shorter sharper drawdowns while also paying paying more over time as an insurance premium um so that was the only thing i'd add i think the aqr paper is is much better and not just because it thinks trend following is great i think it's just a much better written paper but that's the only thing i'd add to it yeah, yeah. mark before we get to jim uh, any thoughts on your side well, I think the important point is the difference between allocation diversification and strategy diversification. And I think especially with that particular paper, they talked about, well, you know, if you held bonds, you'd have done pretty well. And and when you tie this back to our idea of the age of carry, is that bonds were a great diversifier. Is that interest rates were coming down, you had negative correlation with stocks, this was a this is a great way to protect your portfolio. If we're having a secular change, if we're entering a new era, then you have to think beyond allocation diversification because that really works well in a carry environment versus strategy diversification. And I think that we're into the new age of strategy diversification because you know Bonds aren't going to give you the diversification you thought because correlations are now positive with equities. So, so you have to think about what is the environment and what is the strategy or allocation given the secular environment you're in. Now, in terms of strategy diversification, I think that's actually a good segue over to you, Jim, because 
you know, a lot of people talked about um, volatility strategies, um, and I think they implicitly just thought about long volatility. Um, but it, you know, at your firm, you obviously do different things, and 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 have had a, a, a you know very different, much better year than than most of the uh, volatility uh, space. So, um, but also, I guess maybe you know uh, the people at Universa, not necessarily personally, but but of them, because I seem to remember they kept coming on my radar. Um, and maybe this was part of this uh, Twitter spat uh, with Cliff Asnes, um, because they claimed this 4,000% return during COVID, but it turned out that they were calculating this based on the premium they put up uh, as margin or whatever it was. So it wasn't really um, that comparable. Anyways, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, Jim. Uh, tell us what you're thinking. Yeah, before I d dive into the the tail part, I, I just want to reference the, the trend piece real quick. As I mentioned, you know, I think it's very interesting the universe. So when it looks the, the paper, when it looks at the data, it starts in 1980. It's funny how many, you know, uh, how much data analysis when people want to support what's happening <laughs> happened last, you know, takes that 40 year period specifically, right? Uh, yes, there's been a a cyclical um, kind of effect. Uh, sorry, secular effect during that period, but we are transitioning out of that now. And so I think just looking at that data set is a big problem for lots of investors. So anytime you see something start 80, 82, 84, uh, purposely cut there, uh, you know, treat that with, with some caution. Um, you know, in particular that, you know, for over 40 years, we had a decline, in my opinion, a secular decline in uh, the effectiveness of some of these trends because the risk premium got compressed and that, that trend itself started to this has started to die recently. Uh, we're having acceleration of a new trend. Uh, so that new acceleration, as I talked about, is, is a, as a positive in the beginning of a new opportunity, in my view. Um, so I think looking at that, uh, you know, I'm actually a big proponent. I'm, I'm actually, you know, boosting this kind of idea that I think trend could be very good for a little bit here. Um, and we could be at the beginning of a new cycle. On top of that, risk premium has gotten so compressed, we're moving into a regime where risk premium itself should increase. And that should help CTAs um, and others um, of the like as well. So that's kind of a secondary effect that I think is very important that people don't. There's a difference between what's actually happening to, going to happen to realize volatility, and now we can move, kind of transition to, to volatility, um, and what's going to happen to implied volatility. I actually think that spread between implied realized is, is secondary going to increase. Uh, you know, and that's a good thing for uh, people in the vol space. Um, it creates more opportunity. And that risk premium is not just at the money, it's you know on the tail on other places, rel realized relative to implied. Now that doesn't mean SKU is going higher or demand necessarily higher, it's just that spread itself between realized and implied should increase over time. And that's just because there's less liquidity. There's less money to go around. So there's less, uh, less ability to absorb liquidity. And that, that in the short term should create some, um, some opportunities and, and more risk you know, pricing in of, of risk premium as a result. Um, so, um, so yes, in volatility broadly, I think we're entering a period where uh, the market is, again, as we talked about, changing. Uh, that demand for downside protection will continue to be strong, particularly in a market that's going to be much more two-sided and is not just you know, secularly uh, trending. Um, you're going to have more, you know, if we look at the 60s and 70s, um, you know, you had four major recessions in, uh, you know, about a decade, you know, just over a decade long, like a 14, 13 year period, um, you know, very frequent crises, much more quick problems. But over uh, over time, uh, you know, the the amount of volatility, uh, you know, was much lower uh, over the long term. So we did some data and we've talked about this uh, data analysis. We've talked about this recently, but um, 
you know, five-year vol um, is is actually about 10% lower on a realized basis uh, during that 60s and 70s period than over what we've had. What we've had. And the majority of that difference comes from upside. There's just less upside vol. There's more mean reversion to these markets over longer periods of time. And that means actually, ironically, that uh, these periods on a nominal basis, now we're looking at nominal assets, that's important to note, um, is actually a good opportunity right? Because you have these first order effects, which are pushing, making assets cheaper and cheaper over time, right? But you have these second order effects where there's less risk, there's less uh, money going around, less demand for stocks, um, and all while risk premium itself is increasing, right? Um, so now imagine you have this longer term period where, where there's more mean reversions, markets that over the long periods of times don't really go much of anywhere in nominal terms. Uh, in real terms, uh, you know, they, they decline. And those nominal assets then uh, also over that period have higher risk premium. So um, I think over longer time frames, we're actually entering a, uh, and that doesn't mean right now, but over longer time frames, you're entering a period where um, there's less competition for that risk premium. Uh, there's less leverage. Uh, so uh, you know, there's more opportunities actually to include um, kind of risk premium harvesting strategies. Now, to be clear, that's there's a tail on that, right? And we have a long vol strategy. Uh, it's done, as you mentioned, well over, over a considerable period of time. Um, and so that, that, that's very different. I'm talking about five-year outcomes, right? Now let's talk about that cyclical, right? In that cyclical window, though, we're just at the beginning of this turn. And uh, we've had a period of dramatic underperformance uh, of that vol. So I think you're likely within that to have more opportunities to dynamically, if you're very dynamic and, you, and you, you're active in your hedging, to, uh, to come in and really profit more frequently um, from short-term uh, you know, opportunities. Uh, and that's what we see again in the data, more frequent uh, problems in the market, uh, more kind of sharp turns, but more mean reversion and ultimately a lack of uh, equity performance um, over the long run. Um, and, and I think that's probably the most likely outcome. So I think you need to be active with your hedges. Uh, I think equities versus puts versus equities is just not going uh, to work. It actually has worked okay because of the upside trend and the performance of equities and um, you know the the uh, geometric returns that that's provided as part of a long uh, investment strategy. Um, I think that won't work very well. I think that that risk premium will you'll have to pay for it without that upside trend of performance in equities. Um, so I think actually ironically over kind of this next five to ten years, um, I, I think you know more put writing strategies will do significantly well in a longer time frame. But again, okay. short term uh, tail yep. is important. Um, and again, the way Universa does it is is probably the worst way to do it. I think Universa is going to have a tough, tough hoe. They just go and buy puts, little puts again and again and again. And I think um, that world of rally, 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 and then big blow up, rally, 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 big blow up is, um, you know, uh, is probably not what we're seeing. Um, going to see for the next five to 10 years. And so the, the benefits of those kind of big blowups uh, in the context of a longer equity portfolio, uh, you know, is, is going to be a tough argument looking back in 10 years. All right, I'm going to jump to one of Mark's uh, topics and it kind of, um, um, you know, is, 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 is very um, uh, topical for a conversation like this. And that is, what did we all learn from uh, events in 2022? So Mark, maybe I can start with you. What did you learn from events in 2022? 
Well, especially at the end of the year, you always want to sort of do the uh, self-reflection. And, and uh, the the conclusion I came to is that I don't really know that much. <laughs> and that's why I, sometimes I could be a, I should be a trend follower or use that as a basis for trades. So the perfect example would be is, is that if you started 2022, we were near zero interest rates. By uh, when they started raising rates, and we go, let's go a year forward. We're going to have you know Fed funds rates up about five hundred basis points. And so, if someone said, "Do you think what's the over and under of five hundred basis point increase in Fed, uh, in the Fed funds?" I probably said, "I said like, yeah, I'm a little. That, that's a little crazy." So, uh, so I think that the humility that you always need at the end of the year is important and what you figure out is that your forecasts a year out will be extremely poor. And so consequently, that's why we start with our priors of just following the trends because the trends can last longer than expected. Uh, There could be situations that you don't even uh, anticipate what could happen. Another sort of big surprise was we had the big spike in commodities in uh, at the beginning of the uh, Ukraine Russia war. By March, a lot of commodities uh, spiked, and you know you look at energy prices, you look at uh, wheat prices, some of the the grains. They were actually were moving in the opposite direction. So, so again, that's that's something where you sort of said, "Well, uh, what, did that surprise me?" Yeah. So I was sort of expecting that commodities were going to have a, a a significant or further run up, and in rea- reality, they mean reverted. So I think that. Uh, you're constantly surprised. You find out how much you don't know. And without sounding sort of trite, that's the reason why you follow the price action, because your uh, your long-term trends based on exogenous variables, macro variables, could be poor. That being said, I always take the view is that macro trends drive price trends. So in some sense, you need to have an, uh, an idea what the macro environment is doing, but you should always start with the price action first as your, as your basis for any forecast. Sure. Alan, what, what uh, did you learn, if anything, in 2022? Yeah, I mean, I, I think similar to Mark, humility, open-mindedness. I, I think uh, probably th- like things can, can happen a lot more quickly. It's like that thing... I can't remember what the exact expression is. Things can are the way they are for a long time and then they change very quickly or whatever it is. But it was like going back, I mean, I think a lot of us expected, you know, making the case for, for trend following managed future strategies, you know, expected that, that, that there would be a good opportunity at some point with low yields, uh, elevated equity um, valuations, etc. Um, but that it all kind of happened nearly in the space of one year, or, or that we had a big adjustment in the space of of one year, was was probably a surprise to me, and that that we had that, uh, you know, obviously, you know, and and also probably that that people adjust to a new regime so quickly, you know, if if you'd said to somebody a year ago, it's, inflation would be ten percent, you know. It, People would have said you were mad. Like it wasn't on the radar at all. You know, I remember people forecasting five as a, as an outlier event. But now we're into a new regime, so, and, and we deal with it. So, I mean, so you know, we've always um, I've always felt you know, literally anything can happen in markets. You have to be very open minded. But when it, when you do shift to a new regime, the markets do adjust to that. And you, and um, so 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 yeah, I would say being open minded 
humble and uh, yeah, anything can happen. I, I would go back and I was just going to say that the quote that uh, I think you're referring to is by Rudy Dornbush. It said, in economics, things take longer to happen than you think they will. Then they happen faster than they thought they could. That's exactly it. Thanks, Mark. And 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 that sort of is, uh, you know, why you're a trend follower in a nutshell. <laughs> what about you, Rob? What what's your takeaway from 2022? Yeah, exactly the same. I've long been resigned to my inability to make predictions that are successful. Um, I did make one successful financial decision late last year, which was fixing my mortgage for five years at like 1.2 percent. And so if, if I tell everyone that, that I meet about this, so they come away with the pressure that I'm some kind of financial genius without telling them secretly, um, the vast majority of my financial decision-making is made by, frankly, trivially simple rules uh, and just leave it at that. Mm. And yourself, Jim, what's... Um... Yeah, the, the thing with prediction is everybody thinks in two dimensions. Uh, most of the wealth management space thinks, uh, is the market going up or down? Is this thing going this way or that way? Um, and I think... That's uh, a fairly hard, impossible, almost impossible task. Um, but prediction of distribution is a lot easier. Um, prediction of understanding environment and the forces acting upon the structure um, are, um, you know, in the shape. And I think that you started the conversation today about referencing the rise of carry. The rise of carry doesn't speak to direction. It's, it speaks to shape of the distribution, right? And, uh, you know, you can understand these forces and begin to make um, pretty accurate assumptions about how that uh, that shape looks of the distribution, and that itself can be incredibly profitable, um, and, and and really uh, you know secularly can improve uh, your, your returns across strategies if you can get that part right. And I think that's what we're talking about here. So, what does the shape look like? What are the the forces acting upon the environment? And and and, and so I think this year kind of emphasize that, right? Being open to not just following some data, but thinking about what are the forces acting upon uh, the shape? And, and there's a lot of major things happening here, right? I think the, the biggest of all is is very, very, a uh, very, very long, deep, important thing, which is, uh, you know, demographic change, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a, a change in uh, not just the, the amount of millennials coming into consumption, but the underperformance of, of those people and that, that, that inequality, right? And that is driving a demand push economy and a, and a move from record Gini coefficients back down across the market. And I think that simple singular force is acting upon the distribution in, in very meaningful ways. It's going to increase, it's going to force a normalization, right? Uh, a mean reversion to a much longer trend and a normalization. And that changes a lot of things, a lot of things, a lot of shape. And, and I think if, if we're open to those things and understand that, then, then we can, can start to, to profit on different parts of that distribution um, accordingly. We probably all agree it is very hard to be predictive, but that does not mean that trend following is non-predictive. So oftentimes people sort of say that trend following, oh, you don't have any view of the future, you're non-predictive. That's not true, or at least I, I don't think it's true. This is that the fact that I could say I have a hard time forecasting doesn't mean, and I say, therefore, I'm going to place more emphasis on prices does that mean that trend following is non-predictive? So there's there's a separation between the two. And I think that Jim made a good point is this is that uh, we may not be very good about uh, knowing the direction of markets, but we do have sort of good ideas of 
what may happen if we're in a certain regime. We do know uh, conditionally what might happen if we're in certain environments. And so I always sort of talk about there's a difference. Uh, the first thing you need to do if you want to be a predictor is say, where am I first? Then I could sort of say, where am I going? So it's almost like the driver who's saying this is that, I, you know, who you know doesn't look at the map. This is that. So first you have to say, what is the regime that I'm in? Okay, given this regime, here's the likelihood of what might happen. I cannot predict for sure what will happen, but I know that I have a little bit of an edge of the likelihood, given I know what the regime or what the conditional environment may be. Cool. All right. Yeah, I don't think I can add much uh, to that, except just to say that the way I've always thought about this is just that we... Uh, uh, we, we just have to be open to imagine the unimaginable. I think this is the reminder that I always get from from uh, you know a year like this. Um, and unfortunately, it's a little bit like I think uh, I've seen some of these. Um, I think it's uh, Sir Ken Robinson who was this um, you know most viewed um, on TED talks about education, where he talks about how children we are removing their creativity in education. And I think what we in the financial world has been slowly removing in the past two decades is just our imagination that markets can move you know in crazy ways like ne negative oil prices just because we've had a couple of decades where everything has been pretty much under control but i think that's you know coming to an end anyway let's move to something completely uh, off base here and this came from rob uh, of course um, Rob, only give me like two words in terms of a topic. So I definitely need a little bit of context here from you, Rob. But the two words you gave for uh, this conversation was crypto and FTX. So please set the scene, Rob. Well, the scene is that after many years of having crypto, people tell me I'm an idiot and don't know what's going on and all of this stuff. That, that Finally, it looks like the, the kind of sheen is coming off the market as we've had this huge FTX scandal that, of course, was on the back of a, a scandal earlier on in the year um, and the just general deflation of prices. Now, this is not a podcast where I think we should sit around and pontificate about what the price of Bitcoin should be in a year because of what we just discussed, right? Prediction is futile. Uh, <laughs> I trade Bitcoin futures and I don't think I have a position on it at the moment, but obviously if the trend goes one way or the other, then I'll buy or sell it. I'm completely indifferent about that. Um, but, but, you know, crypto is, is effectively an asset class. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about asset classes and, um, you know, the, the, some people have said in the past that, for example, that crypto should, is a tail hedge. Um, I'm hoping that argument is kind of looking a bit silly now, but people have said it. Um, so I think it's maybe worth spending just a few minutes sort of not trying to predict, but sort of saying wh where, where do we feel crypto is in, in terms of its lifestyle cycle? Is this it now? Or is it just going to disappear and just become again the, the chosen a medium of, of drug dealers and, and money launderers or, or uh, you know, is it going to dip down and, and then and then sort of, you know, climb up again and become something res respectable and useful in the future? You know, I'm, I'm up front. I'm a skeptic. I've always been a skeptic. Um, so I'm probably of the former argument that it's it's going to just be one of those fans that will look back in 100 years time and like the South Sea bubble bubble and people will write books about it. And people will say, oh, isn't it hilarious that people used to spend, you know, the price of houses on a tulip bulb? You know, replace that with Bitcoin, and you've got the same story. So that's where I am. But I'm, I'm obviously 
you know, I'd love to hear what you guys think because you may have different opinions. Sure. I'd love to hear what Jim has to say about this because I don't think I've ever heard your opinion about crypto, actually. So uh... we we uh, we had a couple conversations in there. We, but uh, look, I've been pretty clear that that uh, crypto is a speculative bubble. Right. Um, th- that said, um, blockchain itself is a is a secularly important thing i think uh you know i think it personally i think it's going to you know what web three is going to change the world we live in so in, in many ways it's not too different than the tech bubble of of you know the night late 90s in some ways right people got way out in, in front of it i also think it, the money was misplaced i don't think crypto you know as a currency i i think it's dead money, right? But uh, if that money is, if the argument is that money that is flowing into these is then being used for Web3 kind of blockchain-focused projects, different story, right? And those are two very different things. Um, and I think people often get those two things confused. Despite it being a speculative bubble, I think it's important to note it is the religion of, uh, you know, we've talked about this, Niels, but of this millennial generation on down. And we're all sitting here 45 you know, 40-ish plus, well, I won't name any years here, but, you know, talking about something that really belongs to a younger generation for the most part. The reason uh, crypto came about, in my opinion, is is three major things. One, uh, you know, this generation grew up for 40 years during a period of technological uh, innovation, money flowing into corporations, forcing more and more technological advancements. So they believe technology can cure all our problems. Uh, most importantly, two, they, these people, uh, this generation, um, felt didn't benefit from the wealth creation. So they were the ones on the bottom of this inequality distribution. So this idea of fairness and justice, that's all we hear about, right? Equality, equity, justice. These During these periods of inequality, thats these are important things to this generation. And so they feel the system isn't fair. The idea is burn it down, break it, take the money, the power away from government, that was the other driving force. And lastly, because they underperformed, they wanted to catch back up. They needed to catch back up. They're re- reaching primary household formation years, and they're at 40% of where the baby boomers were. So let's YOLO calls, and let's bet on crypto. Let's go for speculation and, and find a way to make money. It is the religion of this generation. They It expresses a lot of the things they grew up with. So they're not going to let go of it. And they are now just growing to these important investment years of their lives. So I do think that there is just because of that some some uh, underpinning level and, and 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 value to these just because of the, the generation that's coming to uh, economic and political dominance. On um, that said, I do think its uses and its uh, the speculation and where it's kind of the money has been pushed is is incorrect. And I think it, that pivot to more blockchain, Web three, you know, uh, et cetera, uh, over the over time times will will ultimately bear out. Um, so that's my broad view, but, uh, yeah, speculative bubble in its current context, uh, much like the 2000, uh, tech bubble. Alan, what's the Irish view on FTX and crypto? Um, hard to generalize. Uh, but you know, I, I'd agree with what the guys have said, you know, it's, uh, it's behaved like a speculative asset in the sense that as you know, the rates have gone up and liquidity has come out of the system. You know, you've seen it in, uh, in, you know, uh, Bitcoin probably did, did peak before the S and P, but it's pretty much traded like a, a risk asset. So it's kind of at the 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 the, the highest high beta end of the spectrum. Um, you know, as 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 Rob alluded to, we did see people circulating charts. You know, saying if you added one percent of Bitcoin to your portfolio, it would improve 
the sharp and, and all of that and, and you had to claim that it would be an inflation hedge or that it was you know digital gold and all, and all of those have been proved to be um incorrect and and you know you had the typical um bull market um kind of qualitative measures too you know definitely this time last year i heard of at least two people who were setting up crypto trading funds here in in dublin and people were approaching me and you know as somebody said to me, there is money to be made for everybody here. You know, that was literally the, the comment. So, you know, these are all of the things that you hear at the peak. Um, I'm, uh, you know, it's kind of, I'm a little bit surprised it's held in a fairly okay in the last few weeks. But, you know, as I guess it's been a favorable few weeks for risk assets. Um, I, you know, I, I would tend to agree, you know, tokenization, um, all of that d- does have the potential to be very, very interesting. Um, so that, you know, if, if we take the kind of the, the 2000.com uh, boom bust as, as a template, you know, technologies that, that were transformational did come out of it. So I'm, I'm certainly open to that possibility. But in terms of tokens, yeah, I, I haven't been a, a believer. And uh, I would I would sit, I would guess if we saw another wave for risk assets that they would come under pressure in, in that type of scenario again. I'm sure, Alan, that the guy who said to you, there's money to be made for everyone, he was thinking about all the service <laughs> providers to the fund, <laughs> not the investors. Anyways, Mark, uh, your thoughts yeah. uh, quick on, there, on crypto. There are FTX. three things that I think are important from this. Is One is is that, uh, and, and some have alluded to this, you have the bubble riders in the age of carry or low le- uh, high leverage. In a sense, as a lot of people said, in in a, in a ability to borrow money cheaply, you want to try or people said a strategy, and it's not just for crypto. Is that I ride bubbles. I find a bubble and I sort of ride it as much as I can because I can borrow money cheaply, I lever as much as uh, as I can, and that's the way I can create wealth. That is coming to an end because the cost of leverage and your ability to borrow is going to be dim- diminished. So you're going to have to, uh, you know, make money the old-fashioned way. You're going to have to earn it, as they, as they said from the from the 80s. The second is is, is that uh, you know uh, you know uh, Charles uh, Kindleberger talked about the Kindleberger cycle, and and with that he said is that you can have bubbles, but that can actually have social value if it's for a technology that pushes you know. Uh, investment capital into new technology. It could then rise to a bubble, but then after the bubble bursts, the technology still exists, and that might have a social value uh, for the overall economy. That may ha- occur with crypto. We're we're going to wait and see on that. That still might be out. So we could sort of say you had bubbles and railroads in the 1800s where, you know, the bubble burst, and then we were left with a lot of railroads that, you know, sort of ha- had a big boost in productivity. The third thing is, is, I think, is that it, when you tie crypto at FTX, is, is that, that we have to sort of realize is that structures matter, regulation matters, and trust matters. And in particular, let's, let's take it in a more future example, the whole LME debacle with nickel. If the underlying structure of, of, of markets is put at risk or you know the trust in markets is put at risk, then that causes uh, trading uh, or, and to grind to a halt. And then people can't be able to allocate risk appropriately because the structure doesn't exist to do it. That's what you're having in FTX. 
and we'll sort of say regulation matters because it's sort of say you look at some of the things that are been going on here is, is that you just sort of say that as uh, I've mentioned before, as John Kenneth Galbraith talked about the bezel, you know, this is that there was wealth created for those who, who did this. And then there's the assumption that, uh, that, that other people had wealth. And now as the bubble bursts, then we find out that, you know, uh, money was, uh, was taken from one group to another. So I think the final thing is, is that even for trend followers, we care about regulation and structure, because if we don't have the right regulation and structure, we can't be able to do our job. Yeah, no, absolutely. I don't have much to add other than to say that actually, I actually hope parts of it uh, survives, but certainly not in the form that it is today. And most importantly, I really hope that a lot of the bad actors that I think we all know who they are, and including some of the financial platforms or media platforms that have been pumping and dumping, uh, you know, this space um, will... Um, will disappear, frankly. Anyways, we'll see. All right, I'm going to end our conversation uh, for this week uh, on that note. Um, you know, this is part one of our 2022 holiday season special group conversation. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you did, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so that more people can uh, discover the podcast and follow the podcast. And um, next week, we'll be back with part two of this special group conversation. So make sure you go and uh, check it out uh, when it's out. In the meantime, we wish you all the best for the holidays. From Jim, Rob, Mark, Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.